With its focus on characters, emotions, and ideology, this powerful drama with great performances easily overcomes its few flaws to drum up enormous empathy and heartbreak. That review from Jeffrey M. Anderson of Common Sense Media. Our featured review, I'll get this out of the way right now. It's the best movie I've seen so far in 2020. It's called Sound of Metal. It's from director Darius Martyr, and it stars Riz Ahmed in the best performance I've seen this year, and I hope will be an Oscar-nominated performance. There's obviously lots of competition. Chadwick Boseman right now is a lead contender for Best Actor for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. That's coming out later this month on Netflix. Anthony Hopkins, big-time Oscar buzz for a movie called The Father. Um... Uh, Delroy Lindo for Defy Bloods I think is going to get an Oscar nomination but I'm hoping Riz Ahmed can crash the party it's a sensational performance I cannot wait to tell you all about that also I read Michael J. Fox's new book Michael J. Fox is one of my favorite actors of all time like prior to discovering Pacino in, like, when I was like 14 when I watched Carlito's Way Michael J. Fox is my favorite actor Family Ties my favorite show as a kid Back to the Future Remains one of my favorite movies of all time and so I had to read Michael J. Fox's new book it's excellent it's called No Time Like the Future An Optimist Considers Mortality uh, and plus, great little twin bill I was sucked into on TCM. Shout out to my other buddy, Mank. Not Mank, the one you're watching on Netflix, but Ben Mankowitz, of course, the host of TCM. They had a good little double bill. It was like midnight on a Friday. It was What She Said, which is a documentary about Pauline Kael, the legendary film critic. That came out two years ago. And then For the Love of Movies, the story of American film criticism. Uh, great documentary from like 2009. And it's got lots of great voices, film critics that I love. I mean, it's definitely... Uh, up my alley. And Joe could not be more fired up to talk about A Recipe for Seduction, a Lifetime movie review starring Mario Lopez as Hyped Up. Uh, we've also got some news. Denis Villeneuve is absolutely furious. There's news involving Pinocchio and Tom Hanks, Michael Douglas playing Ronald Reagan, Ben Affleck starring in a movie. I mean, there's, there's lots of going on here. Plus, uh, you can always hit us up on Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. That's how we keep the podcast going. And you can always actually uh, hit me up personally on Twitter at Adnan S. Verk or at Cinephile Pod and let us know what you think of the pod and uh, where you'd like things to improve and so on and so forth. DBlack519, 100% with Joe. I agree 100% with Joe. Mindhunter is an amazing show. I'm probably going to go back and watch the two seasons again. They were that good. I was curious what your thoughts on the Will Smith movie, Enemy of the State, was. Just rewatched it over the weekend, forgot all the stars and how good it was. Dan Stanzik, former producer of Cinephile, is a gigantic Enemy of the State fan. I, I don't remember really anything about it. So, Joe, do you have any thoughts on Enemy of the State? None off the top of my head. I, I've actually never seen Enemy of the State, but I feel like that's a, a blind spot for my Will Smith catalog. So I got to go watch it now. All right, we'll get you an Enemy of the State review at some point. DBlack519, thank you for the review. Let's dive into Sound of Metal. Riz Ahmed burst onto the scene with The Night Of, which was an incredibly powerful limited series on HBO about a guy wrongfully accused and then having to deal with the prison system, being uh, bereft of any real support except for an attorney with a terrible foot problem in John Turturro. Originally, James Gandolfini was going to bring it to the screen. Had a couple of really great heavyweight writers. Steve Zalian, who wrote Schindler's List, and Richard Price, who I love, wrote Clockers. Both those guys were responsible for the miniseries, and Riz Ahmed was amazing. That was, like I said, his uh, coming out party in terms of a major performance He's then had other roles since then. Actually, took a little bit of a break from acting. He's starting to get burnt out a little bit. And now he's back with a project he really cares about. We are hoping to get him at some point here on Cinephile. And like I said off the top, it's my favorite movie so far of the year. And I hope and I pray he gets a Best Actor nomination. It's called Sound of Metal. And it's about a heavy metal drummer's life thrown into free fall when he begins to lose his hearing. 
he t- she's totally immersive in the role, first of all, like most heavy metal guys. Shirt off, plays the drums, just sweat everywhere. He dyes his hair blonde. I mean, you can totally believe him. I mean, he, Riz is a British guy who's uh, of Pakistani descent, as I am, and he's actually a rapper. Here, you can completely buy him as an all-American guy who loves some heavy metal. Like, you just imagine this guy listening to Motorhead. Um, he's got a relationship with Olivia Cook. She plays Lou. That's the lead singer and his romantic love interest. And I love the fact that very early in the movie, we're thrust into this world. You know, it's just bam. Right out of the gates, he's playing heavy metal. You think of, um, you know, other movies involving music. You have to show the artist at work. You can't just have him talking about the music. You get to see him doing the music. And as a guy who was not a drummer, he looked awfully convincing to me. I don't know if Riz actually plays the drums in real life, but right away you're thrust into that world. And right away, very quickly too, they don't screw around with the plot. 10 minutes in, he loses his hearing. And it comes in a very discomforting manner. He's just having a conversation. All of a sudden he's having trouble hearing and he's like, I don't sure what's going on right now. And actually starts freaking out, goes and visits a doctor. Doctor's like, okay, I, I, he has headphones on. He's like, I cranked this up as loud as I could and you can barely hear me. So you've, you've got like 28% of hearing in your right ear, 24% in your left ear. And like so many people, I'm sure I'd be the same way as this character. Um, okay, let's fix it. The character's name is Ruben, by the way. You know, I would be like Ruben. I'm like, okay, well, let's fix it. Like, what do we got to do? Like hearing aids? Like, let's go. And he's like, I don't think you understand me. You know, your profession, being a heavy metal drummer, you've impacted yourself. Like there's no reason to have any guilt about this, but you know, you're hearing it's gone. It ain't coming back. What you have to do now is not think about how I get it back. It's how do you preserve what you have right now? And naturally, Ruben can't think that way. You know what I mean? He's like, well, there has to be other options. And he says, listen, there is a surgery in which they can put implants. Like it, it's invasive and expensive. It's like $25,000, dollars $40,000. And obviously, as you can tell by this guy's life, he lives in a trailer. Him and Lou are in a heavy metal band. They live in a trailer. They drive across the country. They play concerts. That's it. There's no way this guy's got any sort of that money lying around. So imagine, think about anything in your life you've had happen, just stunning, momentous events, how quickly they can sometimes happen. Now, imagine this were to happen to you. And it's to the movie's credit, you really are thrust into it in a first-person narrative style. Like, I, I, I kept thinking, not just, oh, my God, poor guy. It's imagine this would happen to me. What if tomorrow I woke up and I couldn't hear anymore. Like, how significantly is this impacting every single part of your life? This isn't a setback. This isn't momentary adversity. This is a freaking tsunami. And how do you overcome this? This guy's a drummer, for God's sakes. So naturally, he doesn't tell anybody. He tries going to the next time he's playing a concert. But Lou, again, played by Olivia Cook, can tell something's wrong because he's offbeat, right? How the hell? He can't hear her singing. So clearly, his drumming is off. So he tells her the truth. What's going on? It's like, oh, my God. So naturally, he reacts with rage and he's full of piss and vinegar, and uh, it's disclosed that he was actually a heroin addict. I mean, this is a guy who's actually overcome serious drugs. And a character who is not seen, Hector, he's uh, heard from, he suggests that Riz goes to this camp. Basically, it's like a retreat for deaf people. And, you know, he's going to have to learn to live with this disability and overcome it. And so, of course, he's resistant. He meets with a guy, uh, you know, mainly at Lou's urging, Joe is the guy's name, great at performance by Paul Racy. One of these really quiet performances. You believe him the whole way through. He's very believable and convincing. And through sign language, and he's talking, he says, listen, you know, I can't hear. You know, I lost my hearing. I was a drunk, et cetera. I've got my own issues. Uh, but basically, it's almost like it's a place for people suffering from this disability of being hearing impaired, but also who have thrown demons. And they meet for group as everyone else does. And so, you know, listen, Riz basically has no choice. Ruben's like... I got to do this, otherwise Lou's going to leave me. So he gives it a chance. And you start to see the plot working a little bit. You go, okay, I can see where this is going. 
This guy's had uh, drug problems, drug dependency. It's about learning to accept your life and move on. But one of the great things about Sound of Metal is it never goes for the easy, convenient avenue. And I think a big part of this is because it truly is an independent film. Like, I kept thinking, if this was one of these big-budget movies, I know exactly where it would be going. The score would be awfully cloying. You could see all the beats and where it's headed. But because it's an independent movie, it's got real edge to it. And there's no reason they're going to take any wrong turns. They're going to do this the right way. And it's a lot about empathy, and it's a tough watch. It's a sad watch. It's a depressing watch. But it's also invigorating because it's, you see people working at the peak of their talents. I mean, Justin Chang of the LA Times, he himself said that angsty addiction dramas may be overrepresented in the movies, but sensitive, lived-in portraits of deaf culture and community have always been in short supply. You can't think of very many movies which treat people who are deaf uh, with the type of skill and uh, smarts that this movie does. It is a profound movie which makes you realize you can't take anything for granted. And ultimately, it's Riz Ahmed's showcase. This movie is completely existing on his slight shoulders. You know what I mean? Unless he can carry this movie and make it completely believable, you're not going to buy it. And there's a scene where he's desperate for money. He realizes he can't take any more of this crap. You know what? I'm just going to sell the RV. I'm going to get $25,000. I'm going to get this surgery done. I want to go back to my life. Right? I want my old life back. I don't give a crap anymore. I'm going to get my old life back and I'll just, I'll figure it out. And you can see the desperation in his voice, even as he's trying to bargain with this guy. And then he says, I can't hear anything. I'm deaf. Like, write it down. Like, how many times am I going to tell you? And like, you don't realize how often this is impacting him and just the, the sadness of it. And, and as far as the directing is concerned, there's a real kind of naturalistic sense to it. You feel like you're a fly on the wall. And here's the other part of it. Riz obviously deserves a Best Actor Academy Award nomination. But the sound design of this movie, you know, I've been talking a lot about sound here lately in Cinephile. I told you on Mank, I thought the sound was incredible because it sounded like a 1930s movie. Well, the way this movie uses sound, when he first starts to lose his hearing rather abruptly to moments where he can hear a little bit of it to when he, you know, does the surgery and it's like it's muffled and stuff. I mean, it's incredibly stylish in which they use that, um, the use of that sound. I mean, it's... It's, it's, you think all of a sudden you can magically hear, but it's this muffled kind of distorted noise. And uh, it's an amazing performance. It's amazing sound design. It's very innovative. It's a very impactful drama. And it makes you think about not only ego and about musicians, but also people suffering with disability. And it's a really great script by Martyr, his brother Abraham as well. I don't know their backstory to this, but they clearly are guys that know this terrain. So Sound of Metal is a way that I cannot recommend enough. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. We've still got a few weeks to go here. And yes, the screeners are going to start coming. I'm well aware of the big Oscar heavyweights I haven't seen yet. Nomadland starring Francis McDormand and David Strathairn. One Night in Miami I cannot wait to see. There's also um, uh, some other works. Of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. I mentioned off the top, Bozeman. Like those are three big time movies I can't wait to see. But I'm telling you right now, as I sit here middle of December, Sound of Metal is the best movie I've seen so far. It's essential viewing. It's beautiful and it's profound and uh, it's cathartic. It's available on Amazon Prime. I encourage all of you to watch it. Joe, I know I haven't seen it yet, but seriously, you got to watch this movie. You're going to love it. Oh boy, as as a, a sound nerd and a drummer, I'm all about this. I can't wait to see this. Um, d- real quick, I was reading a review and it turns out he is doing all the drumming and that those club scenes 
where they're playing in front of an audience are as an actual crowd and they're playing an actual gig. I guess that was really important to the director. So Riz Ahmed spent seven months practicing several hours a day to learn the drums for this role. But your praise, Adnan, you're you're uh, uh, really high on the movie The Climb. And so to hear you say that this is better than The Climb or on par with it, it must be pretty good. Oh, no question about it. I mean, The Climb is definitely my top five movies of the year. It might be the number two movie of the year. You're right, the way I was talking about it. I, I would go Sound of Metal and The Climb right now as far as one, two. I got Borat 2 very high on my list. Don't forget about that. Um, but yeah, dude, I, I, I cannot wait for you to see it. Like you said, as a sound design guy and a drummer, I mean, you're definitely going to appreciate this movie. Um, yeah, like I said, it's just very, very powerful. Uh, Bill G. Beery of New York Magazine. The movie may be stylized, but it's not ostentatious. Its universe feels lived in and authentic. Four Maple Leafs, once again, it really is a great, great movie. I uh, I just worry with movies like this, though, Joe, I hope enough people see it. Like, it's going to be, I don't even know if it's going to be in theaters. I mean, Amazon probably feel like is, is enough out there, but hopefully we can get Riz on the podcast. He can give it some pub, because that's the only way movies like this can be sustained, right? Oh, 100% agree. Be, uh, you know, on paper, a drummer losing his hearing isn't necessarily, you know, uh, uh, jumping off the page. But yeah, we, we, we got to try and get him on so that he can talk about his role, his performance, and him learning the drums. I love it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it at some point. All right. Those are my thoughts on Sound of Metal. Coming up next, Michael J. Fox's new book. It's fascinating, and it's a tough read from an actor who I've loved my entire life. It is called No Time Like the Future, An Optimism Considers Mortality, a book review next on Cinephile. Meantime, I want to do a quick book review here. Michael J. Fox's new book, it's called No Time Like the Future, An Optimist Considers Mortality. Now, I've read Michael J. Fox's other work, and Lucky Man is a real tribute to optimism. And what was remarkable about that book is you're reading it thinking, this guy's suffering from Parkinson's. He has this awful pain. He takes these medications you know, hourly, seemingly, all the time. His entire life has been transformed. The gift that he has of acting has been permanently altered, and yet he has such optimism, and he's so grateful for what he has. It's amazing. So what's jarring about this book is even the future is much more grim now for Michael J. Fox. And that's where the title comes from. No time like the future, an optimist considers mortality. And it's a tough read because basically what he says is, maybe I was wrong to be so optimistic. Maybe I was incorrect in giving this perception of my life being so charmed. Maybe people who are suffering from PD, Parkinson's disease, don't want to hear about all my optimism and they want people to realize how much sadness I have and how tough it is. So this is a tough read. I mean, there's no stories here, but him and uh, Dr. Emmett Brown and Back to the Future that he may not have told over the years. Nothing about Mike Flaherty in Spin City. It's mainly about the challenges he's had these last five or six years. He had a spinal tumor removed, which is a big part of the book. They go into detail how the doctor says, like he assembles literally the best of the best when it comes to people who can help him and says to Michael, he says, it's like uh, fantasy football. I've got the best guys all here to do this. And actually says with a bit of wry humor, like I don't want to be the one be known as the guy who paralyzed Michael J. Fox. But yes, that is what could happen. There could be paralysis. You've got to be super careful with this. They're super careful. They remove the tumor, but then he said, listen, you can't fall. And Michael J. Fox, the way he describes this book, he goes, he falls all the time. Like, it's part of Parkinson's. People often think about the tremors naturally. You think of, you know, Muhammad Ali or maybe someone you know in your family or just a loved one who has Parkinson's. But he says it's much, much more than that. Oftentimes, it's about balance and coordination. 
And even now, a lot of his life is in a wheelchair. And he said, people think, oh, I can't walk. He said, no, it's not that I can't walk. It's that I can't walk very fast. And I have struggles with balance and I fall a lot. So I take the wheelchair. But then like when I go to the, the airport, I'm like, no, no, I can actually get up and go through the, the screen. People think it's like a miracle. Oh my God, he walks. Look, at Fox can walk again. He goes, but it's not about that. It's about, like you said, moving faster, moving the right way. And he describes in vivid detail, he comes off this surgery and for months he's doing okay. He's with his wife, Tracy Paul, and he's got four kids. His son, Sam's like 30. He's got twin daughters. His youngest daughter's like 18. And he feels like he's pretty good. And then the first time he's on his own, He's a little too confident and he ends up falling and he breaks his arm. And like, it's just a brutal story. The way he describes it, visceral detail, scorching pain, searing pain. He's going to call his assistant, get him to the hospital. And they're like, oh my God, like, thank God the spine was not impacted. But this is now making surgery, you know, very, very uh, much more challenging. And then the rehab is just much more than that. So I, I wish it was a more upbeat book, but I think uh, Michael J. Fox clearly in this book d- did not want to do that. You know what I mean? His previous books were best-selling memoirs. Lucky man also always looking up. They really had what I think has become his signature optimism. This is different. This isn't pessimism, but it's realism. And he says that. He goes, maybe, you know what? It's okay to be optimistic. You got to be realistic too. You got to tell people what your life is like. And yes, I've raised a ton of money for Parkinson's. We're not going to get a cure in my lifetime. Uh, acting is done for me. He talks about the last couple of shows he did, Designated Survivor with Kiefer Sutherland, which is a reunion. They did Bright Lights, Big City together. He goes, I love Kiefer. But he, you know, he's very quick with his line readings. He doesn't want to have much breath. And he goes, before I could read Family Times, I could memorize the whole thing. He goes, now it's hard. My brain's having trouble on a cognitive level. Remembering my lines, I had to keep pausing and saying line. It was embarrassing. I had to ask the script supervisor. I know the editor will fix it. They'll protect me in post. But he did five episodes and he goes, okay, I think I'm done. The Good Wife, which was a big part of his second act, he played Lewis Canning, which is a show I didn't watch, but I always heard people say, oh, you love Michael J. Fox? Oh, you love the show. He's great on that show. Juliana Margulies. Love her, by the way, Juliana Skiff from The Sopranos. Um, And he said, you know what? The Good Wife was an amazing experience. It really did give me a lot more life. He said, but The Good Fight, which I believe was CBS All Access, smaller budget, much quicker. And again, he couldn't keep up with the pace. He said, I'm at the point now, I'm almost 60 years old. I can't do a 12-hour day on set. Between the Parkinson's, the spinal tumor, the broken arm, the medication he's going to be on, he said it's just it's just much too much. Uh, he does talk about for a couple of pages that he didn't enjoy his performance on Rescue Me, for which he won an Emmy. He was hysterical playing Dwight and Dennis Leary, who's a longtime fan, said, "You know, I wrote this role for you." And he said, "Dennis, I've got Parkinson's. I can never stay still. This guy is in a wheelchair." And Dennis goes, "Yeah, well, you'll figure it out." <laughs> Okay, amazing. He writes the, it's the hardest thing for this guy to do is to stay still. And somehow Dennis Lurie's like, nah, you can do it. So they obviously had to be very careful with his medication. And by the way, the performance is amazing. I used to be a big fan of Rescue Me. Michael J. Fox, he's hilarious. He plays this like, you know, womanizing, pill-popping, alcoholic, total scumbag who's, uh, you know, banging Dennis Lurie's ex-wife. He, hilarious in the show. And he won an Emmy for that performance. He was also incredible in Curb Your Enthusiasm, which again, he writes in the book, this was where I was just embracing the fact that I can still act, but I've got to be able to act and play guys with Parkinson's. And when Larry David told me the idea, he's like, no, you, you like, you know, shake the can of soda on purpose. And I'm like, is that on purpose or is that Parkinson's? He's like, oh, it's just Parkinson's. And he's like, it was so brilliant the way Larry David crafted it that he, he leapt at the role and it was received very well. And in The Good Wife, he doesn't have Parkinson's, but I know his character has some sort of ailment, which they could say that would explain some of the tremors or some of the outward notions so that, you know, again, 
Mike could be able to still act on set, but not to be completely covering it. He also discusses the Michael J. Fox show, which I remember being so pumped about because I love him. It came to NBC, and that's a rare show that was given a full 22 episodes without anyone seeing it. They literally, there's no script. It was just, hey, Michael J. Fox is going to be in a show. Who wants it? And all the studios bid against each other, and NBC goes, we'll do it, and we'll give you a full 22 episodes. That never happens. Normally, you get you know eight episodes, and then we'll see, right? Then the show gets canceled halfway through, or 12 episodes, 13 episodes, et cetera. But for a network show, they're like, Michael J. Fox, no, this guy gave his family ties, Spin City, he's gold. If he can do it, we're in. 22 episodes. And instead, the show was a disaster. And he says he realized very quickly he did not have the stamina, he did not have the, the broadband capability to not only be the star of the show, but also like an executive producer, helping the writing stuff, et cetera. I mean, the, the story was simply a father with Parkinson's tries to take care of his kids. And he tells a story in the book of like the NBC executives whispering to each other on set when they saw he'd have the tremors. And he's like, I could imagine them whispering to him, like, oh my God, does he do that all the time? Like, oh my God, that, that's the Parkinson's. Like, well, what are we going to do? And it's like, what, did you guys, what are you, new? Do you not know my life story? It's, it's the rare time that he actually takes a shot at anybody in the industry. When Michael G. Fox is clearly peeved at the NBC executives that they didn't really understand what they were getting into, did not appreciate what he was challenging with. But then he openly admits, hey, I'm not blaming them. The, the story wasn't good enough, and quite frankly, I didn't have the energy or the bandwidth, as he wrote in the book, to make it a success. I do remember thinking, watching a few episodes, going, this show isn't very good. Like, I love Michael J. Fox, but I don't know what happened here. Clearly, this is not um, bringing back the recipe of success, which he enjoyed with Family Ties and Curb Your Enthusiasm. He also, I, I saw him on the podcast of Mark Maron. and he was discussing uh, Trump, actually. He's a, a huge Democrat, as many in Hollywood are. And his, two of his closest friends, one of them is uh, Harlan Coben, I believe, is a mystery writer. The other is George Stephanopoulos. There's a lot of George Stephanopoulos in this book, which is interesting because Mike said he met him on The American President because he said he was you know, basically patterning that character after him. He said, along with a lack of height, you know, he was kind of channeling George Stephanopoulos in the Rob Reiner movie. And Michael J. Fox, by the way, is great in that movie. Uh, Michael Douglas and that Benning. He's playing like a Stephanopoulos-type guy. But proof that the Fox is always up for a challenge, he took up golf. This is well after he had Parkinson's, so maybe 10 years in. Like, he was diagnosed with Parkinson's at 29. At like 40, he was like, I'm going to take up golf. And one of his best golfing buddies are Jeff, George Stephanopoulos and uh, Harlan Coben. So there's a lot of George Stephanopoulos in the book if you're a political junkie. So Mike's talking about, you know, he'll talk politics often with George after he finishes Good Morning America. He comes over, they play cards together, they watch golf together. They love golf. I did not realize. Michael J. Fox, a huge golf guy. But now again, the book, the book gets sad towards the end. Hey, my golf days are done. I realize now I've had too many surgeries. I can't, I can't keep this up. It's, but, I, but I'm grateful for it. Just like with acting. Hey, my acting career is over. I'm grateful it lasted as long as it did. I'm grateful I had a second act. For golf, hey, I sucked at it, but I really love doing it. I enjoy spending time with my buddies. I golf with Cam Neely, his dear friend of the Boston Bruins, former NHL player. He's a guy who had some good stories. And when he mentions Trump, you know, he says, I, I don't think... If that character, Alex P. Keaton, who was an ardent Republican in the 80s, and a really funny conceit, his parents are huge liberals, he goes, I don't think he'd be a Trump fan. He goes, but he was obviously a huge Reagan fan. And by the way, Ronald Reagan was a huge fan of family ties. He actually invited Michael J. Fox to the White House in the 80s. And Fox said initially he demurred because he said, I'm a Democrat. I don't care for Ronald Reagan's policies. But as funny as it sounds now, he said, well, I respected the office. So I said, okay, I'll go and, and do it. I actually had a good time. He said later Reagan wanted to do a cameo on family ties but he, Michael J. Fox and Gary David Goldberg agreed, hey, you can do it. Here's the condition. Monday, you got to come to the read-through. Tuesday, we got to run lines. Wednesday, you go to the rehearsal. Thursday, uh, camera blocking. Friday, live before a studio audience. If you do all that stuff, then you can do it. And of course, the president, Ronald Reagan, said, nah, I think I'm good with that. But 
interesting just getting his political insights. His son Sam is even more left than he says he is. So this is the life now, Michael J. Fox. He also says he got sucked into a lot of TV while doing rehab, watched a lot of game shows, which he said was a lot of fun to watch for some reason. He did think about himself, that with family ties, he goes, I'm going to live in reruns. I'm going to live long past my own expiration date. So that, that's kind of interesting, the way his own life is. I know he has that perspective on it. Um, he's also a big fan of the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He references that. He, he actually talked about the scene. It's my favorite scene, too, when Leo is berating himself in the trailer because he's just screwing up and not doing well. He said he felt like that when he was doing The Good Fight and when he was doing Designated Survivor with Kiefer Sutherland. He said, listen, I was just so mad at myself that I couldn't bring my A-game anymore. And it's like, it's almost like a great athlete. You realize when you can no longer do it, it's best just to step away. And that's why he's trying to step away now with some measure of grace. So... Um, as he said, his challenge is trying to walk again, overcoming these falls, get out of the lemonade business altogether. He's very articulate too. He did not physically write it. He was dictating it to, I believe, his assistant Nina and somebody else who was writing the book with him. But God, he's got an excellent vocabulary. I'm reading this book on Michael J. Fox dropped out of school in grade 11 in Burnaby, BC and just went to Hollywood to become an actor. His dad died at 61. Dad was chronically overweight, type 2 diabetes. Um, you know, his dad didn't, never got to see the overwhelming success he had. I think he saw that he did Family Ties and Back to the Future, but he never really got to see his son's full career. But Michael J. Fox's mom is still alive, living in quarantine in BC. One of his brothers lives in British Columbia, close to mom. He's got, I believe, two sisters. Uh, one of their siblings passed away. So he, I think he came from a family of five. So he's still got three of his siblings. He still went like on a golfing trip a year ago. So it's, it's really interesting, you know, reading about his life, thinking about his life, a lot of great movies along the way. I, I focus on the big ones, but I love him in Casualties of War. You know, a lot of other movies he said he made just because he was worried about Parkinson's. He wanted to just make as many movies as he could. Life with Mikey, Doc Hollywood, that kind of stuff. But it's a remarkable career, and I give him honesty for the, for the book because he does not shy away from the fact that in the past, maybe he was looking at life through rose-colored glasses. Maybe he was wrong a little bit, but life is still something to be embraced, and his wife sounds unbelievable. Tracy Pollan sounds like one of the great wives of all time. She's so supportive. She's so loving. He's obviously got great kids. So Michael J. Fox's book, if you want to check it out, I read it in 10 days uh, for my local Barnes & Noble. No time like the future on Optimist Considers Mortality. Joe? I'm, I'm glad he wrote this book. My best friend growing up, Adnan, uh, his father passed away from complications uh, from Parkinson's, and it got to a point where, you know, what you're alluding to and in, in the book of how debilitating it actually is. And for him, he had his license taken away after he lost motor functions and totaled his car. And so it's such a gradual thing. And I, and I like how he's being realist about it. It's something that people need to know and understand. So I can't wait to check out this book. Yeah. And he says, it's not the Parkinson's that gets you. It's always something else. He's like, for example, Parkinson's causes a real problem now with eating, with swallowing. So, you know, that could be one way that you could die. You literally can't get enough food in your system. Um, if you get pneumonia and you have Parkinson's, if you're at the advanced stages, you're in real trouble because your body can't fight back against that. So I'm sure that your best friend realized that, you know, at the same time with, with his dad, it was like, listen, it's not going to be the Parkinson's that gets you. It's the fact that it is a degenerative disease and everything is slowly colliding together to, to kind of bring it down, which is just heartbreaking. All right. One more review. For the Love of Movies, the story of American film criticism directed by Boston Phoenix critic Gerald Peary. 
I love this movie. As a guy who always dreamed of being a film critic, I always said if I couldn't be a sportscaster, I wanted to be a film critic. And now I get to do this podcast with Joe. And, and thanks to ESPN for first starting it. And thanks to Cadence 13 for continuing it. We're almost at 160 episodes. And watching this, I was geeking out big time because it was all of my favorite film critics. It was Roger Ebert and Owen Gleiberman and Lucy Schwartzbaum at Entertainment Weekly, Kenneth Turan of the LA Times, A.O. Scott of the New York Times, um, Elvis Mitchell, who I love, the former New York film critic, Jamie Bernard, New York Daily News. I mean, it was all of them. I'm like, yeah, these are like the who's who of like great critics. And it was amazing because they talked about the history of film criticism. Like the stuff that I found less interesting is the way that film critics have changed today. A lot of newspapers are getting rid of film critics, right? Why do we even need to have critics, some snooty 60-year-old giving their pompous opinions? Uh, now a lot of people online, you know, now the rise of Rotten Tomatoes, naturally people just look at the Rotten Tomato ranking and say, okay, good, rather than actually going to the top critics, reading the reviews as I do. Um, you know, Harry Knowles is a guy who's been very big lately. Ain't it cool news, Karina Longworth. The whole point of how critics can sometimes be swayed by the studios, I thought was interesting. But really for me, what I found fascinating was the beginning of film criticism. Like, who was the first film critic? Like, it was amazing watching it. Back in the, like, the 1910, 1915, there was a, like, the first film critic ever. And, like, he was reviewing the movie. He was talking about D.W. Griffith movies. And then later was actually collaborating with D.W. Griffith. Co-wrote a script and actually was in one of the movies. I said, that's amazing. Um, later on, the first truly great critic was James Agee, a guy who Richard Schickel of Time Magazine was talking about. He's a great, great writer. I believe he ended up dying in the war, so he's like, it's too bad because nobody can really see what a great writer he was. Bosley Crowther, very influential film critic, 20-plus years, New York Times. But he'd review movies from a moralistic perspective. You know, is this movie good for you? Does this movie have a good message? Which was interesting. He said so. That he was often missing the point when it came to like these great film noirs of the 40s and 50s. He would toss them aside because they didn't have a great moral purpose. Rather interesting way to review a movie. He was looking more at intent rather than the actual visceral reaction. And then, of course, you get the rave of Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael, which in many ways I thought was the most fascinating part of the movie. Andrew Saris. You know, a, a brilliant film critic would look at movies by categorization. Okay, here's the best directors. Here's the best writers. You know, came up with the auteur theory, heavily influenced by the French film critics like Truffaut and Godard, et cetera, that, you know, the auteur, that there's directors who really are the authors of their work. Hence the auteur theory. If you watch certain directors, you can really see their imprint, notably Hitchcock, um, you know, Nicholas Ray, Wells, obviously. And then Pauline Kael comes out. She's from California, and she writes a scathing rebuke to the auteur theory, absolutely takes apart Andrew Saris, and for years, they were like the two great film critics battling back and forth. Like, before Siskel and Ebert were physically arguing with each other on the same set, for years, Kale and Saris were doing it. And, and Saris, unfortunately, Pauline Kale passed away, but Saris is there talking about it, joking about it, saying, you know, and she would take, she, I mean, she ripped me apart that article, and we'd go back and forth a little bit, but mutual respect, we just look at movies different ways. You know, Sarah's like categorizing things. Kale was more about just the emotion of it. How does it affect me spontaneously? And where I give Pauline Kale credit is she was the, wrote a great review for Mean Streets, very, very famously. That movie did not do much box office, but she said when I saw it, it really was a triumph of personal independent filmmaking, and it marks the beginning of a signature voice in American filmmaking, and his name is Martin Scorsese. Like she called it. Pauline Kale's like, yep, this guy's going to be a genius, and he was. Um, and for somebody who discarded the auteur theory, she was a huge fan of one of Joe's favorites, Brian De Palma. Like, she was always championing De Palma. Like, when De Palma would get criticized for being, you know, hackneyed or repetitive, uh, you know, too many homages to Hitchcock, Pauline Kael was like his biggest champion. 
Um, she was also great to young critics like Owen Gleiberman of EW, Paul Schrader, the great screener, at one point was doing film criticism. Pauline Kael was very kind towards him. But it's almost like she would be kind to you, help you get a job, and then expect you to agree with her. Like there was times that they said she would reach out and go, listen, we've got to champion this movie, this, this writer, this director, like be with me. And it'd be like, well, I, I didn't like the movie. Well, no, we're going to do this. Come on. And so you had Andrew Sarris's group, the, the Sarites, versus the Paulettes. And this little battle back and forth, really, really fascinating. Uh, then we get to the generation we know more of, which is Siskel and Ebert. Uh, they turned film criticism into something that was very popular on television. Obviously, two thumbs up, way up. Um, Roger Ebert's video yearbooks were amazing. And then, like I said, more of the, the current generation. Then you've got, you know, female critics, which is rare to see. You know, with the great female critics. Once you had Janet Maslin reviewing movies for one of the New York papers, along with Jimmy Bernard, New York Daily News, later on, Lisa Schwartzbaum, Really, really cool. And they've got vignettes throughout the movie. Like, hey, as a film critic, do you have other friends? Is it mandatory that all your friends are movie geeks? And one of the critics is like, yes. Like, I, I made the mistake of marrying someone who was not in the movies. We got divorced. Doesn't work. But then Lisa Schwartzbaum laughed. Goes, no, all of my friends I make sure are not movie people. I make sure that they're into books uh, or television or writing. We go on hikes together. And she goes, the best advice I have for a film critic is to not do what Tarantino did. Don't just work in a video store and watch a billion movies. Go out and experience life. You know, I mean, take political science, take English literature, go travel the world. Then when you come back and you watch movies, you'll watch them through a different lens. You know, you can watch a film from Southeast Asia and go, oh, I've actually been there. I understand the culture. Here's why the movie was impactful for me. So that was very, very interesting advice. Uh, Jay Hoberman, obviously a great film critic as well. Wesley Morris, uh, him and Elvis Mitchell, both Elvis Mitchell was interesting. He goes, listen, I never saw a black film critic before. Period. He goes, like, I was interested in writing. I love movies. I never saw a black movie critic. You know what? I'm going to do that. <laughs> and that, that was his inspiration for doing it. Like, all inspiration comes in different ways. Sometimes you want to be a trailblazer. You want to be somebody different. And now a lot of these critics, they realize that a lot of these, you know, new writers are sycophants. They say the studio tells them, hey, give us a blurb. Give us something we can put in the poster. We'll fly you out to Beverly Hills. We'll give you a five-star hotel. And somebody crotchy like Rex Reed, like, they have no interest in that kind of stuff. Like, screw you. I'm not going to do that stuff. So if you have any sort of interest in movies or film criticism, as obviously I do, I highly recommend For the Love of Movies, the story of American film criticism. Once again, I saw it on TCM at like one in the morning on Friday night. I'm not sure where you can find it, but I really, really enjoyed it, Joe. I think anybody like you and me, if you love movies, you'd find it interesting, especially the origins of film criticism itself. Yeah, I was about to say, it, 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 it's interesting hearing, you know, because we all know the story and the evolution of film as a whole, the technology, the direction, all of that. But then to have this story of, you know, how critics as a whole have evolved alongside filmmaking, it sounds fascinating, like a story that hasn't really been told before. But where, where do you see critics going now in the 21st century and moving forward? I know there's a lot of blogs. I know there's, you know, the random person on the Internet, people with Google review accounts, that kind of thing. But where do you personally see it? Yeah, that's I think it gets interesting, Joe, is that, like you said, now it's almost been diluted. Like before, there was only like, literally, there was one voice, Bosley Crowther. Then it was Saris and Kale. Then it was Siskel and Ebert. And now it's like, there's hundreds. Like you literally, like everyone's a critic. And it's like, I thought Richard Linklater made a great point. And he says, listen, I still love critics because I can read the first paragraph and, and I can tell like, hey, does this person have movie knowledge? Do they go to film school? Do they understand formal techniques, et cetera? And uh, Doug Lyman, who directed Swingers, he's hilarious in the documentary. He goes, oh, my God, critics are vital. Like, I'm so insecure, and I hate myself in my movies. I really take it personally if the critics don't like it. And, and conversely, if they do like it, I take a lot of stock in it. So I do think film critics are very important. I obviously value them. Uh, in the past, I would read reviews before watching a movie. Now I watch the movie first. 
Uh, and then I'll go back and read a couple of reviews, or at least the film critics that I like the most. I'll go on Rotten Tomatoes and read the top critics. So I think the fact that Rotten Tomatoes exists is a good thing because it is a condensed version of all those reviews. And it's not just, hey, here's three sentence blurbs from 100 critics. Because once you click on those links, you can read the full review. And I think that's what's important. It's almost like a vehicle or a vessel by which you can read more film criticism, which is very, very important. And Pauline Kael, again, the legend. I, I love this line she had. This is about the claim that movie critics were not suited to critiques unless they were filmmakers. How, about, how good is this line? You don't have to lay an egg to know if it tastes good. That's Pauline Kael. I mean, one of the great writers of all time and certainly one of the most brilliant film critics who ever lived. She's awesome. All right, those are my reviews. When we come back, we'll tell you about A Recipe for Seduction, Joe's review of Mario Lopez's latest vehicle, plus some entertainment news. All right, Joe, your moment of truth. A Recipe for Seduction, a Lifetime movie review starring Mario Lopez as Colonel Harlan Sanders. A woman must choose between a handsome chef she met and a would-be husband chosen by her mother. Too good to be true, right? And, and this was too good to be true. It was better. It was everything that I ever wanted and more. I'll, I'll try to get into it. I'll try to be concise. This was aired on Lifetime over the weekend. Um, at noon east it was 16 minutes long and yes i'll answer your question right now they did set up for a sequel so this is kind of how it starts out you're at an estate think you know newport rhode island or the hamptons you're uh, there's a dinner party going on buckets of fried chicken and everyone's mingling they're having fun there's bunny who is the matriarch of this estate her daughter jessica there's um billy Giribaldi. he's old money uh, and then there's miscellaneous guests, including Jessica's best friend, Lee. So somebody compliments the chicken. Bunny goes, oh, it's not me. It's, it's the new chef. But before she can talk about her new chef, Billy Garibaldi interrupts everyone and proposes to Jessica, the daughter. And Jessica, she doesn't know what to say. She's speechless, but she's conflicted. She doesn't know if she actually wants to marry this entitled, pompous, rich, rich old money person. So she, she kind of leaves. It creates a scene. He's embarrassed. She leaves. Later, Bunny, her mom, and her are talking about it in the kitchen. Uh, she's talking about how conflicted she is, and the mom points out, hey, we're in a huge amount of debt. You have to marry Billy Garibaldi to get his old money. So before they could even finish that conversation, who walks in? That's right, the sexy new chef, Harlan Sanders, played by Mario Lopez. And let me tell you, if Jessica wasn't conflicted before, she's conflicted now because this guy is a dream boat, let me tell you. Um, and so they're, they're talking, and that scene ends. The next day, Jessica goes up to Harlan Sanders and says, hey, no one's offered you a tour of the estate yet. Let me take you around. So, you know, she starts opening to her, up to him, obviously at a level of comfort that she hasn't felt with anyone before. And she starts talking about this marriage proposal, how she doesn't know if she wants to marry Billy. And that's when Harlan Sanders opens up about his secret recipe, which will change the world. And before he could get into his secret recipe, Billy comes... Billy interrupts. He yells at Jessica for embarrassing him at the dinner party, says pretty much threatens her to, that she has to marry him. She runs off. 
Harlan runs off. She calls her best friend, Lee. Lee's about to go on a date at the country club. She's like, I might be falling for this chef. Lee tells her to follow her heart. He goes into the country club. Who's there? Bunny and Billy. They're commiserating over the proposal. And an affair is revealed between Bunny and Billy. And she says, listen, if you marry my daughter, we can continue our um, sultry affair. So Lee hears all of it. There's a huge blow up. Eventually, Billy, he goes to Colonel Sanders, Harlan Sanders, offers him $500,000 to leave, lies to him, says Jessica accepted his proposal. He's conflicted. He leaves. He gets his backpack searched by Billy. Billy steals his secret recipe that will change the world. And so it all leads into this. Harlan goes to Jessica. He says, hey, uh, I know that you're accepting the proposal. I can't be bought off. Hands her the check, storms off. She says, no, I actually love you. I didn't say yes. But she's conflicted. She goes to talk to her mom about it, can't find her. Uh, And so she's wandering the estate grounds, and she hears screaming coming from a shed. She goes into the shed. There's blood on the handle. And what does she see? She sees Billy and Harland in the shed. Harland's tied up. Billy has a knife. The scene right before that, Lee confronts Bunny. He says, I saw you guys at the country club. I'm going to tell them everything. Bunny takes a croquet mallet, smashes him over the back of the head. He gets knocked out. She goes to join them in the shed. Now it's Billy, Harland, and it's Bunny. They're all there. Billy has a knife. They're about to stab Colonel Sanders through the chest. When Lee wakes up, and with the very same croquet mallet that he was used, he he knocks out Billy, and then Bunny loses it. She goes after Harland, who's still tied up in the chair. Jessica shoulder checks her into a shelf, and she gets knocked out too. That was the climax of the scene, right? Like the 14-minute mark. Fade to black, note card, one year later. We're at the wedding of Jessica and Harland. They say their I do's, they kiss, Lee is officiating the wedding, and then it fades to black again, and it opens up the mom, the matriarch, Bunny, is in an insane asylum. A nurse comes up and says, hey, you have a visitor today. Who is the visitor? Billy Garibaldi, old money. Billy Garibaldi's there, and these are the last lines of this first installment of A Recipe for Seduction. All he says is, hello, Bunny. She goes, well, and he goes, I found them. They stare at the camera, ending credits. That was a recipe for seduction. And I wrote down a line, Adnan, that I want to share with you. It was the best line from the entire thing. And it goes, uh, Billy's yelling at Harland, and he goes, beat a crouton, get back to the kitchen. Then Jessica leaves, and then Harland goes, don't ever call me crouton. And that's it. So there's a sequel apparently happening. I hope it happens next year. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I love that you wrote down that line. Don't ever call me crouton. It can be, if ever, I mean, one day you're going to write a best-selling book. That could be like a subheading. Don't ever call me crouton. Um, how many times is Mario Lopez shirtless? Because that's always my first question with him. You know what? He wasn't shirtless in this, but let's just say the shirt he was wearing, even though it was a button-up, still, you know, didn't leave a lot to the imagination. <laughs> it's really highlighting his guns. Clearly, he's been working out, but they're really playing with the salt and pepper aesthetic for his entire outfit. A lot of black and white going on. Uh, how long was this uh, piece of work? It was 16 minutes and 8 seconds. <laughs> 
I love that this future installment's coming. The fact that this is actually a thing and that there's more coming up, it's just fantastic news. It was really something that 2020 has been dark and hard for so many people, but this was really a ray of sunshine to close out the year that I think we all could use. Watch. It's streaming for free on the Lifetime website. I encourage everyone to go check it out. All right, the handsome chef with his plucky heiress. We look forward to that. Thank you for the, the guest review, Joe. Uh, more people pissed off about Warner Brothers and HBO Max, not just Christopher Nolan. How about Denis Villeneuve? Love him. Canadian director, and he's pissed. Uh, much like his fellow Warner Brothers auteur, Christopher Nolan, not happy with the decision to send the studio's entire slate of Warner Brothers simultaneously theatrical and streaming debuts. Villeneuve has a pretty valid reason for his angry and heartfelt reaction. Writing his reaction for Variety, Villeneuve laid out an impassioned defense for his very strong feelings about the fate of his legendary co-produced epic, meant to be the start of a franchise adapting the epic of Frank Herbert's classic sci-fi series to life. Doom is one of many films that will be on HBO Max for a month while also being in theaters. And that potential damage to the box of his picture feels like a slap in the face, which got these remarks from Villeneuve. Dune is by far the best movie I've ever made. My team and I devoted more than three years of our lives to make it a unique big screen experience. Our movie's image and sound were meticulously designed to be seen in theaters. Warner Brothers' decision means Dune won't have the chance to perform financially in order to be viable, and piracy will ultimately triumph. Warner Brothers might just have killed the Dune franchise. As it stands, Dune will be in theaters and on HBO Max starting October 1st, 2021. He's pretty pissed, Joe. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, listen, this is quite the backlash here facing Warner Brothers. Maybe some of these movies will say, you know what, it'll be theatrical only. I don't know. I don't know where we're going to be as a country uh, a year from now, October 1st, 2021, right? Yeah, and I, I wonder uh, if this deal is completely set in stone or, you know, when this movie is supposed to come out, if it can just be released into cinemas. But, yeah, rightfully so. I, I guess if you spend years of your life crafting something together only for it to be just kind of put out there, you'd be kind of mad too, right? Absolutely. Three years of his life. He had Timothee Chalamet. I mean, the, the, the trailers alone look fantastic. So, God, I just can't believe I have to wait till October to go see it. Uh, more news to pass along. Disney is sending two key films to Disney+. Plus: Pinocchio with Tom Hanks. Hope it's better than the Benini version. And Peter Pan and Wendy, skipping their planned theatrical releases. They'll instead debut on the streaming service. The announcement came during the company's Disney Investor Day 2020 presentation. Robert Zemeckis will direct the live-action adaptation of the 1940 Disney classic Pinocchio. Whereas Peter Pan and Wendy, uh, that's going to star Jude Law as Captain Hook. The decision to send multiple films straight to streaming follows Warner Brothers' shocking decision to put its entire 2021 slate, including Matrix 4, Suicide Squad, the aforementioned Dune, and in the Heights to HBO Max, the same day that they'll be released in theaters. Disney's made several bold news among the pandemic, such as debuting Pixar's Soul to Disney Plus for no extra fee, as well as Mulan for $30 on top of the monthly subscription fee. Tom Hanks' is Pinocchio. You fired up for this one, Joe, or what? Oh, yeah. I'm so excited for this. This is the second movie this year that's now going straight to uh, streaming, the first being Greyhound, but I'm really into it. And Robert Zemeckis directing a Peter Pan movie, sign me up. Yeah, in many ways. It was always like a young Spielberg. Spielberg, of course, made Hook, which got mixed reviews. So we'll see if Zemeckis has the killer touch. Uh, also, this from Paramount Television Studios, they've locked up Michael Douglas and Christoph Waltz, Reagan and Gorbachev, limited series that James Foley will direct. I love James Foley because he directed Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Just imagine Douglas as Ronnie 
And Walt with Gorbachev. I mean, he's got the, the, the red birthmark on his head. I mean, this is going to be unbelievable. This is an adaptation of Reagan at Reykjavik, 48 hours that ended the Cold War. Dramatic account of the 1986 Reagan-Gorbachev summit in Iceland. I mean, if this has shades of Frost-Nixon, I cannot wait to see it. Michael Douglas is a president. I mean, I already mentioned the American president. Something about Douglas seems presidential. But if Waltz can knock out Gorbachev, who is obviously balder and fatter than Christoph Waltz, that's the performance I'm looking forward to. Glasnost, Perestroika, am I right? Yeah, one. I mean, knowing Christoph Waltz too, he's already completely fluent in Russian for some reason. You know what I mean? I, I think he's gonna kill this movie and and just slay. He's so good with accents generally, so I think he'll be able to pull it off. Yeah, a weekend that changed the world. The series providing an honest, up close portrait of Reagan at one of his finest and most challenging moments. Uh, finally, one more bit of news: Ben Affleck is gonna star with George Clooney directing. Oh, I love this matchup. Affleck and Negotiations to star in Amazon Studios' adaptation of The Tender Bar with George Clooney directing. They've been trying to work together for years. Uh, Clooney is setting this up as his next directing job. Affleck high on his list. It's a coming-of-age tale. Grant Hesloff, who's Clooney's boy, that'll be his producing partner. Unknown whether or not Clooney will also appear in the film, but with every film that he directs, there's always an option that he could be in there. It's based on the J.R. Moringer memoir about growing up in Long Island, seeking out father figures among the patrons at his uncle's bar. Originally, it was going to be Ted Melfi directing, then he couldn't do it. Sony put the film in a turnaround, so Amazon grabbed it. So, The Tender Bar, if you know the book, you'll be excited the fact it's going to be made a movie. Clooney directs Directing Affleck starring. That's some star power, right? Two A-listers right there. I know they uh, they were trying to work together. Uh, did, did you watch Catch-22 at all? The George Clooney uh, miniseries? I did not. I love Clooney. I heard mixed reviews on it. Did you see it? I watched the first episode. I liked it. I do like the book, but I'm, I'm going to uh, explore the rest of it. But I'm excited. He, he seems to be getting better with every project he works on. Yeah, Clooney, obviously, one of the all-time greats. All right, there's some news to pass along. Coming up next, some Mount Rushmore band and musician movies. Don't go anywhere. Mount Rushmore. We're going to close up shop here with the Mount Rushmore of bands and musician movies. This is inspired by Sound of Metal, which it should be clear if this was on the if this was available, this would be on my Mount Rushmore. That's how great a film it is, how much I love this movie. But for other options, I got to give some love to Whiplash. J.K. Simmons won an Academy Award. Am I rushing or dragging? This announced Damien Chazelle's arrival as a filmmaker to be reckoned with. Miles Teller, huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. He's terrific in the movie Whiplash, an excellent indie movie. Came out six years ago. And like I said, once uh, Simmons and Oscar and the guy's been a long time, great character actor, loved him in Oz. Also, what's love got to do with it? Two tremendous performances from Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne, Tina Turner and Ike Turner. Excellent musical biopic, 1993. Speaking of musical biopics, we keep it rolling with Walk the Line. Joaquin Phoenix, I have trashed Joker many a time, but I loved his performance as Johnny Cash. I appreciate the fact he had his darkness, his brooding, and he also sang all that music. He sang Ring of Fire and Walked the Line, which I think takes a lot of guts. Jimmy Fox got lots of props array, didn't actually sing the music. He was lip syncing. Joaquin Phoenix actually sang the music and incredible chemistry with uh, Reese Witherspoon, who deservedly won an Oscar, channeling June Carter Cash. And last up, La Bamba. It's the first movie I ever got choked up at. I remember watching it as a nine-year-old. It came out in 1987. Lou Diamond Phillips is unforgettable as Richie Valens, Isai Morales, fantastic as Bob. He was actually one of the few things I liked about uh, Ozark. He was in the first season. I love Isai Morales playing Bob. 
Uh, heartbreaking movie. Buddy Holly's great in it as well. La Bamba, amazing movie, but a great Mexican artist. Um, Richie Valens is the guy gone too soon. So those are my four. Whiplash, What's Love Got to Do With It, Walk the Line, and La Bamba. Honorable mentions, great comedy from Christopher Guest, A Mighty Wind. Uh, I did mention Ray, Love and Mercy. I, I really enjoyed the performances of Dano and John Cusack, Brian Wilson film. Uh, Giamatti's terrific as the villain. Obviously, Spinal Tap, iconic comedy. Dreamgirls, Love Beyonce, great Motown music. Jennifer Hudson won an Oscar. And also Bird, just because I love Clint Eastwood's uh, film about Charlie Parker, Forrest Whitaker playing Bird, obviously one of the great jazz giants of all time. Bird would probably be my, my first one on the outside looking in, uh, but there's my Rushmore. Joe? I like that list. First off, I'm going to agree with you on Whiplash. Uh, grew up playing the drums, and it's a movie that really hit me hard when it came out. The only unrealistic scene about the movie is when he's dipping his fingers because they're so bloody because he's been practicing so hard into like a bowl of ice that doesn't really happen you talk to any drummer that doesn't that's that's not really a thing but (laughs) i will do whiplash uh i'll back you up with spinal tap you know one of the great mockumentaries of all time um i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with that thing you do tom hanks following the band rise 1960s uh pop rock music and then my last one will be 1984 Amadeus, which is, uh, what, what, what can I say about that that hasn't already been said? Well, a ton of Oscars, but I will give a shout-out, honorable mention to both Velvet Goldmine, fantastic movie from 1998, and also School of Rock, which when I was a kid I really gravitated towards. So my four are That Thing You Do, Amadeus, Whiplash, and This Is Spinal Tap. Uh, yeah, that's right. School of Rock, Richard Linklater, one of the rare movies that he made that were in a more commercial vein. Jack Black was in that movie. Velvet Goldmine, I could definitely see you enjoying, knowing your taste in music. And um, Amadeus, I gotta watch it again. Ragowski's a huge fan. I'm surprised he hasn't discussed it on Rags time. But uh, F. Murray Abraham playing Salieri and uh, obviously Tom Hulse as Mozart. Well, that was a juggernaut back in 1984. Good, good choices by you. All right, thank you once again for checking out Cinephile. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Tell all your friends. Uh, like I said, it's now screener season, so next week I got a screener for a movie called Working Man, which I thought was excellent. We're going to try to get the director on the podcast. His name is Robert Jury. It's a new film starring Peter Garrity and two-time Academy Award nominee Talia Shire. Speaking of Talia Shire, she, of course, was Connie in the Godfather trilogy. Francis Ford Coppola now with his new release, the new re-edited version of The Godfather Part Three. It is called The Death of Michael Corleone, Coda. It's on Amazon Prime for like four bucks. I'm probably going to go out and buy the DVD. So on the next Cinephile Hopefully we'll hear from Robert Jury, his new film, Working Man, and also a review of the new re-edited, revised Godfather Part 3. Thanks once again to my man Joe, who's doing this remotely in uh, the Twin Cities. And thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you for supporting Cinephile, and I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.